For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt unveils his health care plan to combat the ballot initiative to expand Medicaid. Stitt appeared in Washington, D.C. to debut Medicaid 2.0, which is basically taking a lump sum of federal money for Medicaid in the state. Neva, this is not the first time an Oklahoma Republican has pushed block grants. No, it isn't. And I think it's interesting uh, with the kind of the rollout of what the governor is talking about uh, with the uh, uh, the new health care. Health Adult Opportunity Program, as it's being described, is that uh, this would make Oklahoma, I guess, one of the first in the uh, union to uh, uh, to come on board with this. Now, there is a, a, t- a time consideration here where they're talking about it's still going to be probably 2022 before they can get all of the um, uh, paperwork and all of the things in place to actually make this a reality. So there are a lot of there are a lot of complicating political factors to this, like we talked about in the past. First and foremost being the state question that's still out there. The governor hasn't decided when he'll put it on the ballot, but but the competing, now kind of the competing ideas of how do we deal with Medicaid and expanding it to uh, uh, reach more Oklahomans who would qualify, that's going to be the big test. Ryan. You know, I, I think that we're competing ideas, but one of them would actually work and one of them wouldn't. I mean, I, the, the block grant program, as the Tulsa World said, is a combination of failed ideas that have been shot down by courts over the years. Uh, I think that when we look at what, how the governor looks at Medicaid and what he thinks it is, just isn't what it is. I mean, Medicaid is there so that when people get sick, they can go to the doctor. Medicaid is there to make sure that rural hospitals and doctors are able to provide services in every square foot of our state. It's not a back-to-work program. It's not a program to get people to private insurance. I mean, that's kind of a cruel way to think about this idea that we create a carrot for people uh, so you can go see a doctor, you can get health care, but you've got to try to get back to work. That's not the goal of Medicaid. Um, and so when we look at Medicaid expansion as it is in state question 802 versus what the governor has right now, what the governor has will be tied up in courts, won't deliver services, and will likely lead to a reduction in the types and quality of services that people see around the state of Oklahoma. In 2022, for the third of the state rural hospitals that are on on, uh, on the verge of closure, it's probably too late to get something rolled out for them. And even, yeah. Well, I think it, I, I think the uh, some of the bigger questions in terms of uh, providing access to health care, particularly for rural Oklahomans, which is one of the big uh, uh, parts of this whole conversation, is how do you how do you square do you give basically total control and put this in the Constitution if if the state question passes, which has all kinds of long-term ramifications in terms of budget busting and everything else, or do we go down this road, which it's it's yet to be seen whether these uh, court challenges and other things would completely derail it. It might delay it, but to to put in roughly a hundred million dollars as the as the state share to capture this 1.1 billion uh, that we could access from federal Medicaid funds. I mean, those are the big questions, and I think when lawmakers look at it, the governor threw some things out there that certainly are going to get their attention, not the least of which is that the funds from the Oklahoma uh, side of the uh, ledger uh, could potentially come from going into either funds from corrections or mental health or uh, uh, some of these other agencies to, to garner that money. And that's where, again, the turf war and the fights uh, will probably ensue as lawmakers get more into these details. And David mentioned that it wasn't going to be available possibly even until 2022. And so we don't even know who's going to be the president by that time. We don't know who. I mean, there are so many unknowns 
by 2022. And, you know, and I appreciate the argument that we're putting something in the Constitution, but we put this in the Constitution for the precise reason that we don't want it to be uh, tinkered with by lawmakers, uh, by state legislators, by trying to put new requirements in there or limits on what kind of coverage are out there. You know, what this one of, and there's, you know, some interesting kind of behind the scenes backstory to this. We saw last week, we talked about Terry White, Commissioner of the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, stepping down from her post and that, you know, Governor Stitt had probably wanted that to happen for a long time. But perhaps what we saw was coming to a head of her lack of support over a program like this, which could potentially decimate mental health care services in the state of Oklahoma. Um, so, I mean, I think that when we when we get right down to it, this isn't about the governor saying that he's got a better plan. It's about the governor being against Obamacare. And, you know, you know, Speaker, we haven't talked about Medicaid uh, as as Obamacare for a while, but Speaker McCall in his statement talked about we can't put Obamacare in the Constitution. Well, that really brings it right back down to why Republicans are against this in the first place. It's because it was part of Barack Obama's health care plan. Governor gave his second state of the state address to kick off the 2020 legislative session. The governor says he wants to focus his sophomore year on government efficiency, health care, and did make a mention of gaming compacts. Ryan, <laughs> what did you think of this speech? You know, I'm going to start where the governor started. He had a quote that he said, we all know that Oklahoma's economy and quite frankly, our state budget is built on the backs of the hardworking men and women of, in the oil and natural gas industry. And with, the governor started his, his speech like that. There's so much truth in that. Those hardworking men and women do pay a a far greater share of their income and in taxes than the companies and the billionaire corporate executives that they work for pay. And so I'm glad that he acknowledged that, <laughs> that we do, we do uh, disproportionately put it on the, put our budget on the backs of hardworking men and women in the state of Oklahoma. I was, you know, I'll start with uh, the second thing I'll say is some of the things that I'm surprised we didn't hear a lot of. And we heard some criminal justice conversations, but largely it was retrospective, nothing prospective. There wasn't any mention of state question 805. There wasn't any mention of the myriad of criminal justice reforms, necessary criminal justice reforms that are awaiting the legislature this year or to really put some support behind it during the state of the state. Um, you know, we saw some, I think, you know, some gimmicky things around regulations. Everybody wants to talk about cutting regulations for businesses, but those regulations are often there to protect workers, they're to protect our health, they're there to protect our environment. And this idea that you have to cut two for every new one that you've got out there, you know, uh, Representative uh, Forrest Bennett called it arbitrary. I, I call it a gimmick. I think that it's just a terrible way to, to run governor, uh, government, but it sounds really good. And then, you know, finally, the, the last thing I'll say is that we're beginning to see some of the results of consolidating agency power in the hands of the governor. And he talked about the DOC budget, how they'd initially wanted a billion dollars for infrastructure, but now that request was removed. The only difference is it's not that that billion dollars in need has gone away in terms of infrastructure. The difference is, is that he has somebody as director who will say what he wants him to say, that he doesn't want that billion dollars, not that that the, that the need has gone away. So we're seeing that now happening in these agencies where agencies are supporting the governor's mission rather than just tell them the facts as they are. Neva. Well, I think there were a number of interesting uh, pieces to the state of the state. And I think first and foremost to me, I mean, the fact that the governor did address the gaming compacts and basically again, doubled down on the, where he mm -hmm. is on this and made his position once again <laughs> emphatic and clear. So that kind of uh, puts that front and center for lawmakers who very well may have this infused, as we've talked about in, in recent weeks, into the, the whole conversation uh, in this legislature because of the budget implications. Mm -hmm. But talking about the, the 
dollars. The fact that the governor also uh, said that he wanted to double the state's rainy day fund to $2 billion, we're now at a billion dollars, that becomes one of those, I think, very contentious uh, issues uh, that, that there will be very uh, significant differences of opinion, not only among, between Democrats and Republicans, but certainly even among the Republican caucuses of how do you get there, do you do it, uh, or do you trim that back? And certainly when you've got a, a flatline budget <laughs> that, that, uh, that they're already looking at uh, for the next fiscal year, I think that's going to be something that, uh, that will get a lot of attention. And I agree with Ryan. I mean, the, the focus on the state agency reform and the consolidation aspect, I think some may be uh, non-starters, uh, at least early in the session. Others may get a lot of quick traction. It, it appears that the uh, conversation about ODOT and the Department of Transportation, the merging of those, um, you know, basically on the backside, the admin services and other things, seems to be something that there's not uh, th that there's not a great deal of resistance to. I think there's uh, support for that. You start consolidating all of the health agencies <laughs> together <laughs> and yeah. have this super agency with all of the agencies, many of many of them being agencies that have had the biggest problems mm -hmm. uh, in in recent years: health department, mental health, and all of the others. And then throw licensure uh, uh, boards and consolidating them all within this big umbrella. That's a that's a heavy heavy lift, and I think that's one that we'll see uh, to this point. Uh, many lawmakers, I think, were somewhat. Uh, uh, even though these conversations have kind of simmered along, we're a little bit caught off guard of, of throwing it out there front and center with uh, with that much uh, that much intent in the mm -hmm. in the state of the state. And there was also talk about uh, unclassifying employees. Yeah. Uh, what Huge. were your thoughts about this? I mean, I think that and you know whenever it, you know, I'm watching the state of the state and I watched I watched it on TV and I'm, I'm watching I'm thinking how many folks out there understand the difference between classified and unclassified employees? Um, right. I mean, and he's talking about this, you know, classified employees and, and unclassified employees. What we're talking about is the merit protection system in Oklahoma. You've got employees that are hired that are- It's job security. It's job security. It's not just, and it's job security, it's job protection from interference from political actors. And I, I spoke just a moment ago about that we're beginning to see, you know, greater and greater politi political interference, whether you think that that's a good thing or not to have the governor be able to direct his agency heads politically or not. You know, that's a different policy discussion, but we see that right now. And if, if those agency heads don't toe the partisan line, they could be gone. Um, well, if you're a state employee, if you're a civil servant, you should be insulated from the political whims of the legislature or the political whims of a governor. Uh, it shouldn't, your job shouldn't depend on who wins an election because you're there working on behalf of all Oklahomans in a nonpartisan manner. To move that to an at-will system I think is extraordinarily dangerous, uh, and it's it undermines uh, the, the the type of public service and civil service that we really want to see in our state. And I think that you know we we saw some of the well-worn talking points that that the right has used against state employees for a long time. But I really genuinely think that the governor just can't understand. I, I mean, I, I don't mean this as a slight against him at all, but I, I think that he just can't understand why anybody in their right mind would want to be a state employee and dedicate their lives to public service whenever there are so many private equity tycoon jobs out there just waiting for somebody to go take them. I think that he just doesn't understand that that's a, a valuable and a laudable career choice for a lot of Oklahomans um, and that they should have some protection from pol from politicians 
as they're carrying out their functions. But by the, the same token, one of the things that he has talked about is giving agencies and, and some of these folks the latitude to be able to give bonuses or things within the structure of their uh, of their departments and agencies to incentivize or to uh, uh, promote and reward. And, and that, of course, is a private sector uh, a thought process that oftentimes we we don't ever see uh, really infused into the government uh, the government process. And so I think there are some opportunities there to do some things that uh, that will not only broaden and enhance and 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 make the workforce within state government uh, much more uh, long-term stable, but really uh, enhance the ability to attract people from from the private sector to continue to come in and uh, have have their time of public service. But usually those are in place so that you don't have any, like the, a person hiring their neighbor or their best friend to come in and give them all those bonuses. You don't have the that that kind of thing going on. So there's, I mean, there, there's protections I mean, in place yeah. for that because... That's right. And I think in this climate, let's face it, in the in the day we live, I mean, the idea that you can do too much of that in any in any environment and survive is, is, is very difficult because there's just the opportunity to bring that to light and for people to expose that and see what, uh, uh, see how people react, whether it's uh, within the, the context finds of the the uh, uh, structure of that entity or whether it's just public sentiment and and uh, whether or not it quote kind of passes the smell test yes. and, and there are things that that the state could do right now that don't require gutting the civil service uh, civil servant protections that exist in the state of Oklahoma uh, cost of living adjustments for for folks that are retired mm-hmm. uh, pay raises for people that are already there I mean if we wanted to create a bonus I mean if there are many things that we could do that don't require us to take away that insulation of the civil servant from the political whims at the state legislature or in the governor's office. Well, the governor on Monday also released his executive budget, the money based off estimates from the December Equalization Board showing a relatively flat budget. Neva, any surprises in his budget? Well, I think I think there were a few things. I mean, first of all, it is interesting in this process now as the governor uh, presents his executive budget, I think it's 800 pages. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it's a very detailed budget. Uh, the the lawmakers now beginning on both sides to uh, uh, to work through their process. So I think when when we look at the fact that we're that we are talking about an eight point one billion dollar budget. I mean, the that uh, oftentimes I think uh, just uh, the folks out uh, you know out across Oklahoma have a hard time kind of grappling with that figure and and just the sheer size of of, of government and the fact that uh, uh, the governor said. You know that he didn't include in, in his executive budget uh, the one-time spending, the 163 million. I thought that was interesting. They talked about the fact that uh, this conversation about colas uh, for uh, uh, the cost of living adjustments uh, for uh, the uh, uh, retirees. That's been a hot button issue in the legislature. Four percent had been the uh, kind mm-hmm. of the figure out there. Um, uh, Cabinet Secretary Maisie basically said two percent is probably more, you know, a more realistic figure. So we're seeing some, we're seeing some, uh, I think, definite uh, uh, conversation developing on where they're coming from. Again, it's going to be a give and take with the legislature. And I think when you look at some of these other priorities, I mean, certainly the governor uh, wanting to improve the state's credit rating. I think that is something that is uh, any governor mm-hmm. is going to be uh, kind of keyed in on because it has a, a direct implications on their budgeting approach. So. I think overall there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, two and three million dollar items that were specific to him and what he wants to be able to utilize uh, in his office to uh, 
to move forward, and those will be those negotiating uh, uh, those negotiating pieces that will be part of the bigger picture when he gets back uh, to the table with lawmakers. And at the end of the day, the governor doesn't dictate the budget. Right. I mean, it, the but he it can he, he can lay it yeah. out, but it's going to be lawmakers that are going to have to pass it. Right. And I think that this is going to be the hardest part of this legislative session. The 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 revenue figures that we're already looking at are down, mm-hmm. but those account for I think what is it fifty to a fifty four dollar barrel of oil. <coughs> I mean, that's so I'm already choked up about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're we're already seeing that slide yeah. internationally right now because demand uh, from China is going down, and so as demand from China goes down, we even saw Russia and and uh, you know talking with with OPEC nations about potentially reducing supply. That didn't do a lot to drive up prices. Right. I mean, so we're at a kind of really critical point right now in terms of the price uh, per barrel of, uh, of oil that is going to have a big impact on our budget. And so we could see those numbers come down even further uh, as to what the legislature ultimately has to work with. And th- when we get to, we're talking about this in February, but let's, you know, we get to May, mm-hmm. early May, these conversations about limited dollars and should they be socked away in a rainy day fund whenever we know we've got these critical needs that need to be invested in, that's going to be the biggest debate of this legislative session. All of the other stuff, uh, I think, will fall by the wayside because the governor is going to have to weigh in on that. And it'll be interesting to see if he uh, he's going to have to give some cover, especially to his Republican colleagues in the legislature, as to why they're not putting money into schools or rural hospitals or into transportation and instead want to put it into a rainy day fund. Right, whenever think, it seems like for a lot of people, we're already in a rainy day. Yeah, because basically all of an opponent basically says is we're putting money into a savings account, but I haven't paid my bills yet. Mm-hmm, that's right, and that's going to be. A big and you have these other kind of lingering questions. With until the uh, the gaming compact issues resolved, we have the 150 million dollars right. that uh, directly impacts education, and and where those dollars would be would come from if if not uh, from those revenues. And and so I think yeah, I think it's going to be this real this real hard divide on you know how do we take uh, the existing dollars and where you know where the, not only where they're going to be placed, but the fact that they're going to be folks that. Have had uh, anticipated that they might be in the conversation uh, to have dollars moving their direction, and that that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah. So that's where the I think that's where we'll see the rub, and I think that is where the fight will come uh, in the next few months as they move in the back end of the session toward really hammering out a budget. I mean, a bit of ray of optimism, just briefly, is that at least at this point we're not talking about cuts. I mean. Right. Uh, so that's, I mean, we're, that's a different budget picture. I mean, you know, last year we had money to invest this year, you know, it's, it's hold our breath and hope that we don't have to lose too much. Uh, that's a very different budget conversation than we had, you know, three or four years ago when it was, we hit another recession. Yeah, who's going to get cut and how story. much? Yeah. yeah. The state Supreme court wants supporters of an initiative petition to change redistricting, to go back to the drawing board. Justices felt the gist of the petition, which summarizes the measure, wasn't good enough. Now, the group, people, not politicians, is having to start over with a rewrite of the gist and another approval period before gathering nearly 178,000 signatures. Ryan, how bad of a setback is this? I mean, it's it's not it's not a fatal setback, but it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're definitely at a point where they're going to refile with a gist that they hope uh, that the court will accept. And, you know, the court, you know, first of all, the court ruled that they... Uh, that they were uh, compliant on a number of other issues, you know, so single subject rule, you know, those those things the court said, this thing, totally fine, everything's good there. Um, uh, the First Amendment challenges that we talked about on, on, on this program a while back, you know, they said that those didn't amount to something that would keep this from going on the ballot. But the gist, they felt, did not 
accurately explain to the voters and to the signers what they were signing. So you've got to go back, rewrite that, submit that to the Secretary of State's office. It's a whole new state this question. This will almost certainly be challenged again because mm-hmm. the people that are challenging this are motivated to keep this off of the state uh, state ballot in either this summer or more likely in the fall, November 2020. So there's going to be another challenge again. The court's going to have to hear uh, briefs again. And the court's great about expediting these things. They try to move it. But they're going to have to hear briefs again, possibly oral arguments again, and then have time to put together another decision. One of the interesting things that the court says in their opinion is that they don't have the power to rewrite their own gist or to amend the gist. So it has to start back over. The only remedy that the court had available was to strike it from the ballot. Well, how cool would it be if, if maybe we gave the court the ability to write their own gist so that, uh, you know, if, I mean, that's something that the legislature could do. They could right. empower the court to write their own gist in situations like this because the court's not weighing in and saying we like this or we don't. That's not their place. But they are in a position now of saying, eh, you got to start over. That's going to be really hard for, for this group. Neva. Well, I agree with Speaker McCall when he said that the proposal is a solution in search of a problem because the, there is just not an issue here. Oklahoma is one of 37 states that the state legislatures are primarily responsible for the state legislative redistricting, and there haven't been issues in the past. I mean, it, even when when the redistricting proposals have gone to court, uh, they've, with, with, they've withstood those challenges. So I think what we have here and what we have to remember is that people, not politicians, that the group that is really uh, driving this this conversation and trying to get this uh, uh, pushed through is really an effort by uh, former President Barack Obama and and uh, his Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, who are part of a group called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and their sole purpose on their own website, they talk about that it is motivated to redraw maps to help Democrats um, control Republican policies. So, uh, when people really understand what is at the at the at the real crux of this whole conversation, I think that they will see that it, again. It is just what the speaker said. It is a it is really a solution and that is that they say is needed that there is nothing in Oklahoma that warrants really the serious conversation boy I wish speaker McCall was right I wish that there were that this ballot <laughs> I'm initiative, not either huh? I, I wish that I wish that he were right and that this ballot initiative if it passed would create a commission that uh, would allow for Democrats to suddenly gain majorities in, in the Oklahoma legislature <laughs> but it just won't I mean or even get close to it but I mean, is that the intent no the, the overall uh, the intent. intent is to create competitive districts mm-hmm. and you know we have partisan gerrymandering right now that that has allowed for a lot of districts to be Republican controlled, or even in some cases, democratically controlled, where more and more races are decided in primaries and runoffs, and not all voters have a chance to have a competitive election at the general election. Now, what I'd like to see, uh, and again, this doesn't change the dynamic either way, but I do think it creates a more representative democracy, is ranked choice voting. If if this group is isn't able to get this on the ballot in November of twenty for November of twenty twenty two, I hope everybody will take a step back. Take a deep breath and say the better thing that we can do for democracy in Oklahoma is to pass ranked choice voting. And that you know, that that lifts everybody up. I mean, this is an important reform, but the idea that it just changes the partisan dynamic in Oklahoma, like Speaker McCall seems to think that it's intended to do, it just it just won't happen. I think at the end of the day, redistricting will be done in the same fashion it was done 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And we will see the same good result in that it will be a fair process for all involved. Opponents of permitless carry are trying once again to repeal it. Oklahoma City Democratic Representative Jason Lowe and the group Moms Demand Action have filed a petition with the Secretary of State's office. Neva, they have 90 days to get roughly 95,000 signatures. Do you think they can do it? I, I think they can. They can 
do it in all likelihood, particularly if they have a, a paid uh, a, a paid process where they really do what we've seen with other petition gathering uh, efforts in the in the past year or two. Uh, that's not a that's not a high bar, uh, and I think what we I think the bigger issue here is kind of where it goes beyond beyond just the signature gathering and whether or not they get it to the ballot and whether Oklahomans really completely understand what what the issue is here. I mean. When we think back last year, the House passed 70 to 30 for Millis Carey. Uh, it was 40 to 6 in the Senate. It was the first bill signed by the governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we are one of, I believe, uh, we were the 16th state uh, to uh, to allow this uh, constitutional carry. And what we have is really this divide. Oklahoma, Oklahoma Moms Demand Action is really, I mean, it is a gun control adv- advocacy group that is part of a, a larger a group of organizations uh, uh, organizations across many states under an umbrella that was funded by uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, to the tune of $50 million to really uh, create an advocacy network to begin to try to pass uh, these kind of laws for gun control. And this is something Oklahomans have across the board uh, uh, rejected. Uh, so I think I think they've got a very tough uh, hill to climb on this, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how quickly they move through this process. Ryan, I think they'll get the signature. I think think they'll get there without paid signature collection. And you know, Neva mentioned that there are uh, you know, all of these other ballot measures uh, that are on the ballot or potentially going to be on the ballot. Uh, those are being, signatures there are being collected almost exclusively by paid signature gatherers. I mean, there are volunteers that help supplement that stuff, but I mean, millions of dollars going into, uh, because I mean, we have got such a, it's not the signature threshold, it's that you've got 90 days to do it. And so to be able to do that, almost always you have to do a paid signature collection effort. There have been a couple of exceptions to that. State question 788, which you know barely scraped across, you know, barely eked across the finish line with volunteer signature collections. Uh, and then with the Moms Demand Action, now I think they'll be able to do this with volunteer. Neva's right, the, the, the more interesting question is what this looks like uh, in the election, because I think that this does make the ballot. The Second Amendment group's talking about challenging it. There's really no grounds to challenge it. I mean, they can protest it, but I think the court will summarily dismiss that. There's just not a lot to it. It's a a straight-up repeal of a statutory uh, change that the legislature makes. Which is the whole point of the Constitution. Yeah, Yeah. so I mean, there's. I think that uh, it'll probably be on the ballot. We'll get to vote on it. And, you know, I think that Oklahomans, I think that the legislature and the governor are out of step where most, where most Oklahomans are at on guns and gun control, uh, and that there's just this disconnect that's driven by, uh, by, the, by the politics of guns and gun, gun ownership and gun control. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, a, a real big poll. I mean, think of it as that, like a real big poll of where Oklahomans are at on, on, on gun issues. A literal poll. A literal yes. poll. Yeah. Right now, that's the other thing, and it goes kind of goes back to also the uh, initiative position on redistricting. Is shouldn't uh, regardless of wh- whether you feel for it or against it, it shouldn't it be? And there's been a lot of talk, a lot, a lot le- letting people vote. I, Finally, I th- letting people I, decide I the that, issue. On, I think on the, the I think that is what uh, we have in place and what uh, affords Oklahomans uh, the opportunity to vote on on big questions that uh, come before them, whether the legislature uh, puts it before them or whether mm-hmm. they go through the uh, initiative petition process, but. 
you know, I think I think you have two things in play here. You have the process of getting something to the ballot, and then you have the political campaign that ensues to uh, to educate and shape and form opinion on that. And when it gets right down down to it on this, even Representative Jason Lowe, uh, who is uh, heading up this effort uh, with the, with the uh, uh, Moms uh, Advocacy Group, is uh, he said that you know we're not trying to take away people's guns. We're just trying to require a permit and training, and that will be the the challenge. Is uh, mm-hmm. to persuade uh, Oklahomans that it isn't a, a, a an effort to really take away guns, but something else. And I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be a fascinating campaign if we see it later this year. And and you know I, I would suggest maybe don't start your campaign for this ballot initiative by saying we're not taking away your guns. I mean, just as <laughs> yeah. a framing matter, maybe not say that. You know, and you know, just real quick, Michael, you you'd mentioned you know shouldn't we let folks vote on this? The Supreme Court, you know, they said the right of the people. And one of these recent because uh, there are a couple of opinions around the state question. Uh, uh, 804, they said the right of the people to engage in the initiative process is precious and must be guarded. And I'm saying this about all initiative petitions, even the ones that I disagree with. There will be an effort, whether it's this year or next, at the legislature to begin to try to limit the right of people in Oklahoma to use initiative petition process to drive public policy uh, conversations with the voters, directly with the voters in Oklahoma. And people on all ends of that political spectrum, right, left, we all got to you know hold hands and stand strong against that and protect this precious right. And Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.